So good to see us filling up even in spite of the cold. Greetings to all those <clears throat> on YouTube. Okay, let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, again, we just thank you <clears throat> and praise you for the privilege we have of meeting, uh, of being able to gather together still freely. And we just praise you and thank you for that privilege. And we thank you for the uh, incredible gift that we are going to be unpacking uh, of what you've done at, at Easter and what this week means. I just continue to pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would guide us, give us the unction that you alone can give uh, to make this a permanent value. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I just want to revisit that scripture that we read this morning. This is our text this morning. This again is Mark 11, 1 through 9. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, every year, every year for this specific day, we go out and get palm branches. I mean, you see them, you have them, they've been distributed to the, to the pews. They represent the leafy branches that have been cut from the fields that were placed on the road before Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. And so we ask a simple question, well, what is the point of passing out pieces of leafy branches? I mean, as far as I can tell, God never said anything about gathering up palm branches just to celebrate Palm Sunday. So why do we do it? I mean, why do we even call it Palm Sunday? I mean, why not call it Triumph Sunday or Hosanna Day or something like that? Well, you see, the palms are there to help us remember because it turns out that we humans have a long history of using props and using aids to jar our memories because we are all in the habit of forgetting. God knows that as well. And so this morning I want to revisit some of the steps that we've talked about in the past, some of the steps that God used particularly with Israel to help them to remember and, and to discuss why remembering is so incredibly important. So Israel... Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert was coming to an end. Moses had died. His successor, Joshua, had the task of leading the Jews into the promised land. But in order to do that, he had to cross over the Jordan River, which was at that time at flood stage. It was going to take a miracle. But that was by design. You see, Joshua was to lead them in an impossible task so that God could lift Joshua up because he was going to be the new Moses. Joshua 3.7 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. So God instructs Joshua to have the priests bear the Ark of the Covenant right up to the banks of the Jordan as a test. Verse 13 says, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So as soon as these priests' feet touched the river, well, the waters parted and they piled up as a heap on either side. And the entire nation of Israel passed through the Jordan just like their ancestors had passed through the Red Sea and they passed on dry ground. But consider what Joshua did next. It says, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this, sign may be, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So Joshua has one man from each tribe go into the middle of the Jordan, and there from this newly dried out ground, they were to fetch a stone, a, a large stone, in order so that they could build a memorial. And again, why did Joshua command that? <laughs> because one of our greatest of human failings is forgetting. And Joshua wanted to ensure that that would not happen. Now, if you had crossed over a major river in the middle of its flood stage, I mean, if you saw with your own eyes a river held back and piled high by the hand of God, do you think you would ever forget that? Well, the answer is yes. No matter how spectacular the event, eventually our memories dim, diminish, and disappear. I mean, you may think that's impossible. But consider this statement of just how short the memory was of the Israelites. This is in Exodus 16. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meal pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Two and a half months, just think about it, it took two and a half months for the Jews to so completely forget the frogs, the flies, the water turned to blood, and all the other miracles that had gotten them out of Egypt. I mean, they were witness to 10 different supernatural plagues that broke the will of Pharaoh. And then they, they marched out of Egypt right through the Red Sea on dry ground, only to see their enemies swallowed up by the very same sea. And in less than three months since God worked those miracles, God was so completely forgotten that he was accused of bringing the Jews into the wilderness to kill them. 
Well, it's, it's now 40 years later. Joshua is going to lead these, the children of those who had been born to these very same people. And he knew how easy it was to forget. So Joshua said, these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. See, memorial is a reminder. And Israel desperately needed one. Over their 40-year journey in the desert, they had repeatedly, pointedly, and willfully chosen to forget the God who would warn them in Deuteronomy 6, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Consider what they had forgotten. They had forgotten the manna and the quail miraculously delivered. They had forgotten the, the bitter water turned sweet, even the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. I mean, the Jews were not careful. They had forgotten their God. I mean, we don't often think of forgetting as, as, as something sinful, but God does. David in Psalm 103 said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Proverbs 3, 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. See, the reason why we don't see forgetting as as, as a sin is not because it's something that we don't do. It's because it's something we all do. It is so common a failing, so common a sin that we don't even categorize it as a sin. I mean, we think of forgetfulness as as roughly akin to being left-handed or colorblind. And yet forgetfulness can range from being simply annoying to profoundly sinful. It all depends on what is forgotten and who is affected by it. I mean, if I forget to feed my goldfish, it's no big deal. If I forget to feed my unborn, my newborn baby, it's a much bigger deal. I mean, forgetting to show up at a, at, at a company picnic is not the same as forgetting to show up at your own wedding. And again, it has to do with what is forgotten and who's affected by it. You see, and when we forget God, we forget the biggest who and the greatest what There is. And the reason why we do so so often is because forgetting God actually seems to have no apparent consequence. I mean, if I forget my wedding, if I forget to feed my children, I'm certainly going to hear about it. Even my goldfish is going to die and stink if I forget them. But if I forget God, apparently nothing happens. I mean, the sun still rises and sets, sets on the just and the unjust alike. I mean, life continues to go on. And those who forget even the thought of God continue to do so with impunity. As the the psalmist says in Psalm 73, the wicked prosper. So what's the point of remembering? And what's the point if the consequences of forgetting are non-existent? You know, even God knows about that argument. I mean, he's heard it all before. Listen to what God says to believers who feel betrayed by God's inaction. This is Malachi 3.13. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? 
you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Well, back then, even as it is today, there seems to be no obvious distinction between those who serve God and those who mock him. And even God acknowledges that. Uh, But he also says in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And need I add the distinction in those who remember him and those who do not. Now Job 8 says, While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. Have you ever forgotten God? I mean, perhaps you're thinking a a question like that surely needs a qualifier. I mean, what constitutes forgetting God? I mean, what level of consciousness does God expect from us? Well, Deuteronomy 6 says this. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So what constitutes forgetting God? Well, the answer is actually simple. It's it's living any part of my life as if God wasn't a part of it. God says there's, there's basically four parts of your day when I should be part of your thinking, when I should be on your heart. When you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise. I mean, that's God's way of saying, I should be on your mind and in your heart 24-7, 365. Well, now, you might be thinking, well, isn't that a little bit overboard? I mean, that's kind of fanatical. That's not even practical. I mean, it would create a whole class of people who are so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good, as the cliche goes. And the fact is that simply isn't true. The most engaged folks I know are people who have God on their minds constantly. In fact, being heavenly-minded is the key to being of any earthly good. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. The problem with the world and with the church today is that it aims almost exclusively at earth. I mean, it has forgotten that we are dust, that we didn't invent ourselves, that we are mere creatures put here for a purpose by a creator. That purpose is to glorify God. And it's not something that we only do on Sunday mornings. Okay, so so how much of my consciousness is God entitled to? Well, the answer has to do with who we think we are and what we think we're here for. You see, if our, if our purpose of existing is God's glory, then, then what part of our conscious thought do we exclude? I mean, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And when do we do that? Well, Deuteronomy tells you when, you, when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That about covers it. Now, before you lift up your hands in despair, I want you to just revisit with me that scripture in Deuteronomy 6, because the very next verse says what we are to do with these commandments from God. It says, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames and on your gates. And you know what all of these devices are? These are reminders. And you know why God gives us those reminders? He knows how easily we forget. And why did God have an altar built out of stones taken from the dry ground at the center of the River Jordan? Quote, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And a memorial is something that stirs up what? Your memory. I mean, God knows us. He knows how quickly we forget. I mean, what was the purpose of the Passover celebration? What was the purpose of the Day of Atonement? What's the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles? God says it, so you will not forget. I mean, you remember what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. What did he say? He said, this do in what? In remembrance of me. Well, that brings me to the point of this message this morning. See, today marks the beginning of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who forget so easily have been given by God a whole week. We've been given a week to prepare to celebrate the greatest event in the history of humankind. And that's Jesus Christ's triumph over death and his resurrection. And Palm Sunday starts a week of remembrance of that event. There's 52 weeks in a year. This week coming up should be like no other week in that year because the event of the resurrection is like no other. I mean, all history, human, divine, natural, supernatural, it flows forward or backward from that one event. The first day of this week is today. It's Palm Sunday. 
it marks our Lord's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. John 12 tells us that the, the multitude met Jesus with palm branches and that they laid them down shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we pass out palm branches on Palm Sunday. And why do we do that? To help us remember. And what do we remember about that day? And do you remember what Jesus did as he approached Jerusalem at the height of his triumph? If you remember, the, the, the crowds were shouting, the Pharisees were fuming, every person in Jerusalem was overwhelmed with Jesus. The one person who wasn't overwhelmed was Jesus. Luke 19 says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept for a blindness in his people that would culminate days later with more shouts. But now it would be shouts for his crucifixion. Shouts for his blood to be on their heads and on the heads of their children. And Jesus wasn't weeping for himself. He was weeping for a judgment that would come to Jerusalem. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, some 37 years later in AD 70, Jerusalem was overrun by Rome and exactly what Jesus had predicted came true. See, Jesus is God incarnate. He, he knows the future. And he also knew with absolute accuracy every last detail that would unfold over the next few days. And we know that he knew all about it because a month before he even arrived in Jerusalem, he said this in Matthew 20. He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. See, at the very height of his triumph, Jesus already knew his fate because he already knew his purpose. See, he had not come to earth as a teacher or as a, a ruler or example. He came as a sacrifice. His purpose was to lead a spotless, flawless life and so earn the right to have the blood drained from his body to splatter on the wood, the nails, and the soil below. And that blood, the blood of God himself, that blood alone would atone for my sin and for yours. I mean, this was the moment his whole public ministry was, was pointed to. It wasn't his teaching or, or living or miracles that brought him to Jerusalem. It was his impending execution. You know, three years earlier, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he's baptized by John the Baptist, who was sent as the prophet to prepare the way for Christ. And here's John, and he sees Jesus approaching, and he identifies him as the Christ, not by declaring, behold, the teacher. Although he was certainly the greatest teacher there ever was, John, he didn't declare, behold, the leader. Although he led all of creation to the greatest victory he would ever have at the cross. And he didn't declare, behold, the example. 
although he was the greatest example there ever was of what it meant to live a flawless human life, none of those titles defined who Jesus truly was. It was John the Baptist who had that privilege, and it was he who declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, what an incredibly strange but absolutely appropriate title. I mean, everybody knew the purpose of a lamb was to be sacrificed. And for three years, as, as, as Jesus healed and he taught and he ministered, he knew that his primary mission was to be that sacrificial lamb of God. And that thought was never, never beyond his consciousness. I mean, we know from experience that we human beings have a hard time remembering. And I'm just wondering if Jesus, from experience, had a hard time forgetting. I mean, how do you forget what had to loom in front of his consciousness every single waking day of his life? I mean, we know from the Palm Sunday account that Jesus wept, and what we, we don't know, because he's left no record of it, is if Jesus ever laughed. I mean, Jesus knew every single day of his adult life that he was here to be slaughtered as a perfect sacrificial lamb. And unlike us, he certainly didn't need reminders. And so the question is, could he ever forget his purpose long enough to laugh? Could he ever for one moment wipe out the imminence of the torture he knew was coming? we struggle to remember. Did he struggle to forget? I don't know. I do know that the palms and the crowds and the hosannas made him weep. And I do know that Palm Sunday and those palms helped me remember that. It starts off a whole week of remembrance. And the next day of Holy Week is Holy Thursday. It's known to some as Monday Thursday after the first word of the Latin anthem that is sung on that day. Holy Thursday is a day that is set aside to commemorate the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was a Passover meal, which was in itself a meal designed to help the Jews, what? Remember. To keep them forgetting what God had done when they were still slaves in Egypt. You know, God told the Jews to take a lamb and to slaughter it, spread the blood over their doorposts and lentils, because that night God was sending his final plague on Egypt. The angel of death would come down that night and kill the firstborn in all of Egypt. And if the angel saw the blood of the lamb on a doorpost, he would pass over that house and they would be spared. And to remember that event, Jews all over Israel slaughtered a lamb for the Passover celebration. Jesus himself celebrated a Passover supper the night before he went to the cross, and it's referred to as the Last Supper. And Luke tells us he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so once again, God is simply asking us to remember. But the very next day, Jesus was the Passover lamb, whose shed blood would cover the sins of his sheep. Now, it was not coincidence that Jesus was crucified at the exact same time that the Jews were celebrating Passover. I mean, John's gospel tells us of the timing of the crucifixion, and it states in John 19, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. 
So on the very day that Jews in all of Jerusalem are slaughtering their lambs to remember how the blood of a lamb had protected them from death, at the very same moment, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was being slaughtered so that his blood could save us from death. That wasn't a coincidence. Holy Thursday is a day designed to help us remember the Passover. The next day of Holy Week is Good Friday. This is the day that we set aside to remember our Lord's crucifixion. And I have vivid memories of this, of this day as a child. I mean, to, it was to be a day of profound sorrow. No shopping, no sports, no TV, no games. Silence from noon to 3 p.m. And we were not particularly observant Roman Catholics. But you know, I believe they got that right. And that we Protestants, on this day we often, we just miss out on that. This is the day to focus on the mocking on the slaps to the face, on the spitting, on the taunts, on the question, who struck you? We remember the sport the soldiers made of the king of the universe, the crown, fashioned from two-inch thornbriars, forced into his brown. Again, the taunts, hail, king of the Jews. We remember the floggings. Leather thongs with bits of metal and bone on the end designed to tear flesh from bone. We remember the wicked procession. Jesus forced to carry his own cross. We remember him stripped, nailed, and hoisted all to the gloating and mocking of the very ones that he came to save. Good Friday is a dreadful day of remembrance. So what's good about it? when we focus on what took place at the cross. There was no noble shouldering of man's sin there. That, that wouldn't do. See, what many misunderstand is that the cross is not a place where Jesus just came to pay the price of our sins. Now, at the cross, the spotless one instead became sin for us. That's hugely different. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now when I think of remembering Good Friday, I always think of remembering that passage in Johnny Erickson's book, When God Weeps. And just about every year we read that passage for the exact reason we're speaking of. So that we will remember why Good Friday is both dreadful and good. Johnny picks up the crucifixion at the driving of the very first nail. Quote, As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor begin to, began to weft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. 
the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath. But now that roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, and acting smugly? Playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes? You have burnt down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel, and bragging about all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? The father watches as his heart's treasure. The mirror image of himself sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind for every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. Two eternal hearts tear, their intimate friendship shaken to the depths. The Trinity had planned it. The sun endured it. The spirit enabled him. The father rejected the son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Good Friday is the day God gives us to remember his cross. The next day is Holy Saturday. And the church is, as it were, at the Lamb's, at the Lord's tomb. It's meditating on his passion and death, awaiting his resurrection with prayer and fasting. You see, Holy Saturday commemorates the time the entire universe held its breath. It didn't know the results. For Jesus' death to have been an acceptable sacrifice, it too would have to have been like his life, flawless. If the Lord Jesus Christ's entire life and death had been marred by any sin whatsoever, then death and the grave would claim him, and Satan would have had the ultimate victory. In fact, it's been suggested that hell itself feasted and partied, assuming they had triumphed. 
Saturday is a day of pensive waiting, anticipating Sunday. And Sunday is the most glorious day of the Christian calendar. It's the day we celebrate the triumph of mercy and justice over sin. It is a day of worship and praise and thanksgiving like no other day all year long. It is a day when the justice of God and the mercy of God meet and kiss. Or it's a day of new outfits and Easter bunnies and Easter eggs. It all depends on what you choose to remember and what you choose to forget. I said at the beginning of this message that we who forget so easily have been given by God a week to prepare to celebrate the greatest event in the history of mankind. And so I want to ask each of us this morning, what are your plans for next week? You know, three times a year, God called ancient Israel to celebrate feasts in order to remember. And when he did it, all work was to stop. I mean, everyone ceased what they were doing to appear before the Lord. And even the army was to cease all military duties. This is what God said in Exodus 34. He said, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Do you realize how amazing that statement is? Do you hear what God said? He's saying that these, these commemorations are so incredibly important that he's going to move in the wills of all of Israel's enemies. And for the time necessary for them to remember God, God says, I will make them forget that they're your enemy. I'll make them have no desire whatsoever to even covet your land. And by the way, the next time you think God will never interfere in human autonomy, just remember this promise from God. Quote, no one shall covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. You see, three times a year, God broke through the pagan wills of Israel's enemies and made them cease coveting Israel's land. Three times a year, God said, everything is going to stop. Even the covetous desires of Israel's enemies had to stop while Israel tended to what really mattered. They were about the business of remembering. Remembering God's deliverance from Egypt and his provision for Israel. It was a sacred task. And this week, this week we are about the business of the deliverance of the universe from the bondage of sin. The sacred triumph of the prince of the universe over the power of death. The resurrection that gives eternal life to all who place their trust in him. So what are we planning for this week? I'm sure Walmart's got a big Easter sale and I'm sure the malls are going to be packed and there's gardens to be tilled and there's spring cleaning to be done and time to change the oil in the car and we remember, that we remember those tasks all too well. And I'm not saying that all life has to cease this week. What I am saying is that this is a week to change our perspective. And to ask, what do you plan to do with this week? And as in ancient Israel, the responsibility for households rested with the man. And so this morning, I particularly want to address the husbands. And ask, will this week be any different than all the others in your household, men? 
You know, growing up, our household used the, the Passion Week to, to view Franco Zeffirelli's film, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I still think it's one of the greatest Easter movies of all. And it's a, it's a six-hour movie, so we would watch a chunk of it each day just to keep us focused. And, and I'm sure all of us plan to be here for the Good Friday service, but what about the rest of the week? Now, maybe you want to use some devotionals or, or some Christian music or, or read from the scripture, but I exhort you this morning, make this week different from the other 51. Ask God for wisdom. Ask him to help you remember what Colossians 2.13 proclaims. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the day we celebrate the fact that the empty tomb is proof that Jesus won. And because he won, we win eternally. So let us never forget that. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Father, uh, again, I just, I thank you for this week. I thank you for what it represents. I thank, I just, we don't have a clue what the universe is celebrating this week. We see through a glass darkly. We have these tiny little hints uh, Lord, I just pray that we would take all of those things that you've given us to help us remember, that we would use this week to make it different from the other 51, that we would remember exactly what it's about and offer you praise. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, folks, if you'd all stand, let me give to you God's blessing.